Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, you know what time it is. It is the best Tuesday you've had all week. It is time for the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn joining me in studio today. Matt Dixon. All right, and we are ready to rock. First, let me go formally on the record as no, not interested in the fantasy football draft. Oh, man, I'm going to keep twisting your arm until <laughs> he's. He is trying it. I keep trying. You know, we're going to talk a little bit uh, today on the show about sort of how, uh, like the the risk analysis and the numbers. Like I'm kind of this is a by the numbers show, not boring by the numbers, but it's it's hilarious to me because I start. I got to give you the backdrop, everybody. If you were, to, you know, so right before the show, I'm talking to Matt about the concept of diminishing marginal return, right? And I tell him, I have this theory called the B-plus second draft rule. And he springs into action and says to me, right, I got an A-plus on my draft. To yeah. which my eyes, like, roll back in my head. And I go, I don't even know what this means. My draft grade was phenomenal. I had the 12th pick in the draft this year for fantasy football and scored an A-plus on the yeah. draft rating. All right, I got to know, how much time do you invest in fantasy football? It's, it's really bad. It takes a toll on my marriage in the fall. My okay. wife hates it, but it, I, it's I, so I, addicting. So there are a couple of things I'm learning about Matthew. So one of them is this uh, bizarre fetish for fantasy football yep. and fishing lures. Yeah. Right? Like, and not, Well, just fishing in general, right? Fishing, fishing lures. Yeah. It obsessed. You, you like make your own fishing lures, don't you? Oh, yeah. This is a subtle plug. Like You can buy fishing lures from Matt. Yeah, you just go to Waldron's. We've got hats. We've got fishing lures, T-shirts. I see. It's it's a full-on production. I see. What, we decided we were going to make T-shirts last time for something. I, now i got to remember what the phrase was. Uh, it had something to do with capitalism. Um, ethical capitalism. Yes, ethical capitalism. Hashtag ethical capitalism. We're going to... Have that as our as our T-shirt line. We should give them out to customers as they come in. Oh, I, I really love the idea, and it is totally relevant today. But so we're going to talk a little bit about just how one goes about analyzing numbers. Now, why is this even coming up? There's context, okay? So let me first share a little bit about as as you all know, we talk about all kinds of things in the financial arena. When this show first started. And it's been years now. When did it start? It's been like six years ago, something like that. Five, six years ago. So you're a legend now. No. Oh. That's not accurate at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, What happened was, so years ago, there was a gentleman by the name of Kelly Leonard who did, uh, like, uh, I don't remember what it was called, but like I think it was called It's Your Money or something like that. But anyway, so he did this show for years, and then when he was getting ready to sort of I'll call it retire, right? I don't know if you ever really retire from finance. Phase out. But but he was going to phase out. And nobody else wanted the job, evidently. Really? No, not really, really. I was I was sort of asked about it. Now, because we're not in a brokerage environment, mm-hmm. a little bit more flexibility with the rules. Because financial advisors aren't selling stuff. They sell advice. And it's fiduciary in nature. It is more complicated in terms of the rules and regulations around advertising. Now, it says right at the beginning of the show, right? Hey, this is paid for by Little John Financial. So it is technically an advertisement. But our take has always been this is about education, 
right? So we don't sell much on this show. And and the tagline from the start was true wealth is the st- it's the stuff money can't buy and death can't take away, right? So it's the memories and the relationships. That's the real wealth in our world. The rest of it is just money's how you trade your time. Mm-hmm. Right? So we talk about it a lot and we tell folks that are listening, look, if if you find yourself over your head, find somebody to help. And if you don't have that somebody, it maybe is us, right? So so it is an advertisement, but it's pretty loose. Yeah. Well, I told you that story to, you know, kind of get to the punchline of underneath the hood of what we do, we manage money for customers. And we educate them along the way. We do. But on the show, we educate a lot. But I mean, if you go to Little John Financial, one of the one of the things we do is, you know, there's financial planning and strategy and a bunch of things. But some of it is we manage money. Now, that means for some, in some environments, uh, financial planners and advisors will introduce to third party firms, mutual funds and so forth. Now, there's nothing wrong with using mutual funds. We do it, too. But a lot of the time we build our own investment strategies. Right. So we actually go yeah. out and buy the individual stocks and it's making it's the equivalent of sort of creating your own private mutual fund. Yeah, right? that's so a good it's not way to a mutual it. fund because it's not other people, right? But you have your own private fund that mimics what a mutual fund would be doing. But you own it, you control the taxes and all those elements that come with it. And we have different strategies that we use for different purposes and different investors. And we were talking about a dividend investment model that we have. Yeah. So one of the models that we have typically holds 25 investments in it by design. And we want to own fewer than that. I know this sounds crazy, right? Like, wait a minute, you want to be less diversified? So mathematically, it's justifiable. We're not going to talk about it on the show today, but you know, the standard deviation doesn't change that much if we reduce the number of positions. And we want to pair it with another strategy or two or three, right? So there will be more positions when we mix them all together. But we were shopping for dividends. We did spend some time today doing that. Yeah. And so I sort of cut Matt loose and said, hey, go find stuff, right? And it didn't give you very much. To yeah, work the parameters with were pretty loose. So give our listeners a, a sense of a, a few of the parameters that we talked about. Um, we wanted to double the dividend return compared to the SP 500. Okay. It's just so everybody knows, SP 500 right now, we used. As a proxy to, you, know, you can't really invest directly in an index. You have to like buy an index fund yeah. or something. So we used an ETF that mimics the index. It, the ticker symbol was SPY, and we looked at the dividend yield. And the dividend yield on the SPY is 1.3%. Which you would think it would be a little bit higher. At, at least I did. I thought it was going to be higher than that. I was surprised to see yeah. it was so low. There are some S&P stocks that have higher dividends, and then there are some that have zero. Right. So when you start to average them all out, yeah. 1.3 is not outlandish for a, an all-stock portfolio, much of which is, is large growth, much of which is technology. A lot of tech companies are reinvesting so they don't pay dividends. Yeah. So so it's not outlandish. To, but we wanted a strategy that was going to pay a dividend. And I said, well, let's start with 2x right. the S&P yield, right? So it should be higher than 2.6. Right. So targeting stuff, a, a little bit over three. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we were also trying to spread that out over different fields. So we're obviously not going to load everything up on energy. We're going to spread right. that out. Right. We don't out. want all oil stocks. Right. right. Oil stocks you often pay a dividend or utilities might pay a dividend. Yeah. So we don't want to just we o- own to all the same out. stuff. We wanted to diversify sectors. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things I was working on today is 
um, you know, spreading that out over energy and, um, like, you know, food. That was Mm -hmm. a a good stock where you can find a high dividend. And utilities. Mm -hmm. Utilities, there's a lot of dividend there. Um, So that was one of the parameters we were looking at. Okay. And so there was another biggie that is hidden in there for money managers, right? Now, you as an individual investor may be less concerned about this than we are as a manager because we have multiple investors that we're working with, right? And that is liquidity. Got to be able to get your money back. Yeah. So the, the idea is that you don't want to buy something and then not be able to sell it and get rid of it later. Yeah. Okay. This is kind of the challenge with real estate. It's not a super liquid asset, right? You, we understand that you can buy it and you can sell it. It's got tax treatment of long and short-term gains. It's but can you sell it tomorrow? That's the thing is it can take a while for title to transfer and just the whole process of getting things done. And I think that's something that maybe not all of our listeners might know either is that, you know, if you get into a certain stock, it might not be very liquid. If it has a yeah. really, really, really low volume... I mean, yeah, you might yeah. not be able to sell that right away. So one of the things that we look for is the average daily trading volume. Yep. That's the number of shares that trade hands between buyers and sellers in a day. And then we also look at the market capitalization. That's a little less understood. It is. right. But if you consider for a moment that maybe there's a penny stock that trades 5 million shares a day. But, but it's it, only $1.50. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and well, yeah, let's say it's a dollar. Sure. Right. So it's trading $5 million. You come in as an institution and say, well, I'm going to buy $10 million worth of this stock. Well, guess what? You bought all of it, (laughs) right? You bought all of the daily trading volume. Do you think that's going to skew the supply and demand characteristics of that stock? Right, exactly. You know, and the short answer is there's a very good chance yes. Not a guarantee. Maybe a bunch of other institutions have the same idea. And before you know it, there's a, a feeding frenzy. But when you have really low volume, that's what tends to move prices more, right? So I, I had a mentor years ago that talked about what moves the price of a stock. And they said, well, it's the aggressiveness of the buyers or sellers, right? If you consider a stock that has tons and tons of buyers and sellers, and they're all fairly evenly matched up between the number of buyers and sellers, then the price is relatively stable, mm-hmm. right? It's just shares you know, swapping back and forth. But if there's a real disparity in agreement over price, bunch of people want to sell, but not very many people want to buy. The price can really fall fast if people are aggressively willing to unload. And it pains me because I know someone personally who sent me a text message just the other day. And they said, hey, what do you think of this? And they had purchased like 8,000 shares of something. And the, I mean, it was a penny stock by definition. Mm -hmm. And you know, they had they had put a ton of money into it and they didn't really know much about it. They had just saw something on YouTube and they're like, oh, I feel really good about this. Boom. They purchase it and they don't they didn't even really know what they had. Yeah. And this is if there was a thing that came out of the GameStop phenomenon of the last several months and the meme stocks that have come out of the Reddit trading boards and Wall oh, Street bets man. and all that. It really is gambling. That's exactly what this was. Yeah. And so, you know, that's not investing any longer. That's gambling. 
Yeah. Right. And it really drives me bananas because gambling is gambling. It's not investing. I know. And uh, it gets confused, too. People skew that line so often. They do. Now, people will say, well, you're just betting on the you know the stock market. It's that's a, a it's fairly, much more refined than that. It is because if a company is making money, what you're betting on is the future revenues. Yeah. And and how it's going to be positioned relative to inflation. Right. So you're betting on future demand for that. So, yes, the economic characteristics matter. But ultimately, uh, we've seen like the, the whole GameStop thing. It stopped being about much of the underlying fundamentals of the company. It, it became the dynamic of the market, supply and demand. Right. The short squeeze. We've talked about that yeah. on the show before where people Those are sold dangerous stock waters. That didn't, you know, before they owned it. And then if everybody else refuses to 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 sell, right, and and then they need to have the price drop in order to buy it back cheaper. If nobody will sell their stock, there's no sellers, then the price can't drop, right? They're mm-hmm. all buying and driving it higher and higher and higher. Scary one. That's a short squeeze, right? So as we're looking at this, I want to spend a little time today just talking more about the numbers the way that we analyze things and how do we try to get our out of our way of how do we how do you shift it from gambling to investing right Ooh, so there's some beginning. some of that element today like how do we get out of the gambling uh, and into investing how do we how do we use the numbers how do you parse data that's something that listeners need to stick around for yeah they do but we got to take in our obscene profit break first so we will do that and then on the flip side we're going to unpack a little bit if you're interested in knowing how do we as pros start approaching the problem solve of investing that is when we come right back stick around this is dave littlejohn and matt dixon and you got true wealth on news radio 1240 kqen All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Just a reminder, if you missed all of the quality content prior to our last Obscene Profit Break, it will be available tomorrow on the podcast. Yes. Right? So you go to littlejohnfs.com under the Educate tab, and we got a pile of podcasts that go back for years and years. Uh, you will, If you listen long enough, you'll hear some of the same stuff. That's how that works. <laughs> uh, there are also there's a YouTube channel that you can link in there. Got some stuff where that's where you know we get the questions about hey can you help out my kid, right? And so we've got some good videos there to get started for uh, the kids if they're out. And I guess kids being relative, it's more like young adults, right? If you're yeah. kind of high school age, you know, if you're like six, probably going to be pretty bored. Like I don't have the Fisher Price video up yet, but yeah, the rest of them somewhere about ninth grade or so probably can latch in they'll, they'll say like who's the old dude i get it but the content's not bad or at least i'm told it's not can you self-assess your own content are you allowed to I do that i think you can it sounds so egotistical nah. like no it's pretty good right oh yeah i'll let you all be the judge you tell me if it's any good okay so matt at the pro- at the break we're talking shop about what we do as pros when analyzing risk and um so I'm curious, you're kind of new. You've mm-hmm. seen a handful of the things that we are doing. Is there anything that's jumped out at you uh, in looking at the processes as you've seen them with sort of the freshest eyes on the yeah. team? 
I mean, I don't think people fully understand their real risk score. I mean, that's one thing that we do in shop is we analyze it with a score, right? Mm -hmm. From zero to a hundred. And I think a lot of people come in thinking that they're either, you know, super conservative um, when they might be a little bit more risky with their uh, mm-hmm. belief on how they want to invest. And I, that's one thing I've really noticed lately is that people often don't understand their own level of risk until someone's there to talk it through with them. Okay. Yeah, that's – and to give everybody listening just a little bit of uh, kind of a breakdown on, on what Matt's talking about – we do. We grade things. So we grade all the investments that we use on sort of a score between zero and a hundred. And it's not what you it maybe initially think. It's not, is it good, bad, or otherwise? Right. It's, it's the volatility characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. How much upside versus downside do we typically see in a stock? And there, there is sort of a math process. It's if you really want to get wonky about it, it's called mean variance optimization. Ooh. Yeah. And mean variance, just like it sounds, so mean or the average variability and then optimizing for average variability. Okay, so mean variance optimization, and it's a backward-looking metric. That's the problem, right? Because everywhere you look, it says, remember, past performance is no guarantee of future results. So we do some adjustment internally to try to look at projection scenarios for well, what would it look like if we saw this additional forward-looking data? How might that change our opinion? But with backward-looking data, we can rank, we sort of rank things and say, well, this is what it has done. Yeah, okay? uh, it's a little like driving with the rearview mirror, right? Which is why we're not a purely strategic shop. We are tactical, meaning good. Well, let's try to make some assumptions about forward-looking data, and based on our assumptions and our modeling, can we adjust the a outputs? little blend of both? But it's important because what you don't want to do is if you're an investor and you're really conservative, we don't want to get you in investments that don't match how you want to be invested. Yeah. But you're right. So what the, the problem, Matt, is I think not everybody, like their definition of conservative is not necessarily our definition of conservative. Yeah, that's true. So, you, you know, you'd go through a risk profiling process where we literally ask a bunch of data-driven questions and get you to say, well, you know, let's look at some trade-off scenarios. Do you like scenario A or scenario B? And do, through testing, we can kind of refine and, and get somebody to like, well, we can grade the person and their risk attitude on a scale of zero to 100 also. How, how often when someone takes that test and they see that score, do they say, you know what, no, I don't feel like that test was fully accurate. From what I've seen, most of the time, People are looking at it and saying, eh, yeah, actually, that does feel... It, it does a really good job. Yeah. There's a lot of um, academics behind it that, yeah. that have driven it there. But I'd say about 20% of the time, folks look at that, and what happens is they go through the process, then they realize they were trying to game it when they took oh, it. Oh, that they would go, make sense. Oh, now that I see that, I want to answer different. And then they retake it, and it is it's more, more reflective true. of what yeah. they want. That would make sense. So, you know, there's a that's just different people have different iterative learning processes, I suppose. Right. So I think it does a good job of arriving where somebody should be, though. Yeah, I do, too. And so then we've now we've got a matched up, though. Right. Like the 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 investments that we have. So first, it's not an investment. Right. We, we grade every right. investment, it's really but then we mix out. them together and we grade the composite of all of that. And then we match that to the client's risk score, too. So everything sort of aligns. And that's that's part of that fiduciary process. 
Well, there are things that I think we as advisors do. And like, here's what I think we do. And I'm curious your thoughts. We did it this morning. Okay. Right. Which is we have a committee. Yeah. That reviews things. Why do we do that? We're protecting the customer, really. We yeah. want to maximize, you know, what they're able to earn while also minimizing that risk. And so we're meeting and we're pouring over each and every investment that we have and making sure, you know, every single week, is this where we want it to be? And I think that's what really, you know, a lot of people don't realize the value in that because if you're working a nine to five, do you have the time or the knowledge to be able to do that on your own? Are you going to be able to sit there and look through these charts and give it that technical analysis? Probably not. And that's why it's really good to have someone in your corner so that they can be handling that for you. Yeah. And what I like about it is, I mean, the benefit, of course, is from a client perspective, you're getting more than one set of eyes. Yeah. I mean, right? you've got there's four people and, looking yeah, at this. There's a check and balance process. And it's really more than that, too, because we have other, a whole bunch of other tools and research that are getting yeah. into that. So by the time we're filtering it, it's already survived several iterations of filtration. Yeah. But, boy, I keep using the word iteration, huh? Huh. All right. Well, yeah, note to self. Don't keep saying iteration. iteration. <laughs> uh, so... The, but the point is that we filtered it through all this stuff, and then you've got our committee reviewing it as well. And part of what we're trying to do, there's all of these, there's this baggage that we bring to decisions, right? A lot of us don't realize it, but we bring baggage. Oh, yeah. Right? And one of the, there's lots of different studies on this. Uh, but the whole field of behavioral finance talks about the embedded biases that we have and how it influences our decisions, right? For sure. Uh, one of my favorites I've talked about on the program before, the sale-proof stock, right? Anchoring bias. Have you heard of this one? Yeah. Okay, so you want, to, you want to explain to our listeners? I mean, I think it's where you buy in on a stock and you're just gonna stick with it and as, kind of like the anchor, it's just dragging you along and you're not letting go of the rope even when you're getting sucked down. Well, kind of, yeah. So what it is is the, the, the last part of that, and keep in mind, right, I'm springing these on Matthew, and it's not like you've been a long, a lifelong study or behavioral finance. So, nope, it's so, good. It's but good. This is, actually, this is learning for me too. This is really pretty close. Uh, so, so we'll just unpack it a little bit more. That It's anchoring to the price you buy something for, mm -hmm. right? So I, we bought it here, and like I, buy, I paid $20 for the stock, and now it fell to $10. Well, I can't sell it until it gets back to $20. Yeah. Okay. Because it's... I don't want to take the loss. I'm anchored to that price. Uh, I joke about this, but I'm anchored to the price of a Snickers bar being 40 cents. Right? <laughs> like when I was a kid, a Snickers bar was 40 cents. Do you still avoid buying Snickers because they're not 40 cents? No, I'm not. Okay. I'm not crazy. It's a <laughs> Snickers bar here, right? But it's. Yeah, I don't eat Snickers bars much anymore. No, forty I'm cents. Also I'm not, not a kid. eating it. <laughs> I can eat that Snickers bar, and it will stick with me for a while. <laughs> but and in thirty minutes, I'll want a nap. But uh, but no, the, the the point is that my anchoring bias is well, that was the price when I was a kid, so I feel like that's what it should cost. But by that logic, gas should be less than a dollar too. 
And today I'm like, oh man, this gas is ridiculous, right? Mm. But so is a vehicle price. Yeah. I can remember when you get a brand new car for under 10 grand, and now I'm like, well, can you get a car for under 30? That actually wasn't even that long ago either. It's crazy how things have shifted. Well, that is the nature of inflation. Don't worry, that's coming. But more on that later in the show. Yeah, stick around. But um, the idea is that this the, the you you anchor to a price right yeah why is it a sale proof stock if you if you're anchored to the price you paid for it Be, because you're not selling it unless the price goes up right right yeah. so the price goes down and you won't sell it and then if the price comes back well why should i sell it it's making money now oh i know it's tough <laughs> so it's like it's tough. oh man so so here's the trick and why we have an investment committee right what should you do when it comes to a stock this is very hard to do by the way Right, it's really hard to get clinical on this, but what do you, what do you do if you have uh, you already own an investment? You're trying to decide whether or not to to buy or sell it. Rephrase that. Where where are you going with this? Well, the the the, the easy answer. I don't even want to rephrase. It, I'm just going to answer it. Oh, right? go for it. Where I'm going for is you need to act like would you, so you need to ask the question backwards. Would I buy it today? Oh, right. Yeah. Would I do I want to own the investment today if I knew nothing else about it? If I didn't have it before, would I still want to own it? And if the answer is yes, I still want to own it. Then keep it. Yeah. I mean, uh, here's a real-world example, okay? Now, this is not a recommendation. So let me be very, very clear. But we discussed Ford as a company. Now, the discussion, and again, don't go making decisions around whether or not we own Ford. We owned it for a reason. It was complementing other things. Ford's off almost 20% from its highs. Right. And so we looked at it and said, well, what do we do? You know, should we keep it or not? And the decision as a committee, which I think I probably drove a lot, by the way. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I was agreeing with you on yep. this. I just wasn't talking about but, it. But, you know, COVID has just completely jacked up. The supply, supply chain. chain. And, and so yeah. you can't, they, they can't sell a lot of vehicles because they're waiting on chips and other things to get them out to marketplace, right? The, you know, the whole semiconductor shortage and so forth. But fundamentally, there wasn't a huge check there. That well, was and, and the away. issue is so it's come down in price, but now we look at this and say, well, if we liked it before, do we like it more at this price? Gotcha. And my answer is, well, actually, yes. Yeah, your sentiment about the company right. hasn't really changed. And keep in mind, this is my long-term case. Again, not investment advice. I'm going to keep beating that drum if regulators listen to this, which is that our premise is that we think there's a transition toward more electric vehicles. And Ford, both Ford and General Motors are making significant investments Big in time. electric vehicle production and research. And we think Tesla was the beta that... You and know, it they, worked. They rolled a bunch yep. out, and they started distributing. It's the higher-end, more expensive version. Uh, we think Tesla is really interesting for battery technology. Or I do. This is the royal we. I think Tesla is interesting for battery tech. But if you take away a lot of the government incentives, Tesla doesn't really make money. So it's very hard for me to call it an investment in the traditional sense. Again, I'm not advising you one way or the other. I'm just telling you our opinions. And when we look at that versus... Ford that has a longer standing track record and more profitability of vehicles, if they're going to pour $30 billion or so into R&D over the next five years, we view that as a significant positive for a market where the landscape is changing, and Tesla's already rolled out a lot of the charging stations nationwide. So yeah. we, we see a lot of the, 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 you know, the backdrop has been sort of set 
for these other players to come in and be competitive. Doesn't mean they're superior or anything else. Just means very interesting for making it a more broadly adopted technology. Yeah. And we wanted to invest in something like that. Not a recommendation for you again. But that's a good example for the listeners. Yeah. So so we looked at it and said price is down. Are we anchored to the price we paid for it? And the answer is well we're irritated that we actually are a little we're lower than we bought it for. So that's a capital loss if we had to sell it tomorrow. But we don't plan to sell it right now because of other reasons. And that's again our committee discussion. You may disagree and you know, you're free country. You can go do that. That's what makes a market, right? But anyway, we are running a little long. Let's grab a break here. Uh, and we'll get back to it. We don't have to talk about uh, anchor bias anymore. We figured that one out. Now we have all new biases. But first, this obscene profit break. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. All right, we're getting our cues down. Love it. So we have been like jamming through today, talking about how uh, kind of parsing investments. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, we don't talk about this a lot. Uh, why it's relevant? I, I need to give a little bit of backdrop, uh, and the reason is because I think investing is going to get trickier looking forward a little bit. Really. I do. Why is right? that? Well, because I think the Fed, the Federal Reserve, right? The, the FOMC, Federal Open Market Committee. Mm -hmm. My sense is that the narrative is beginning to change. In what way? Well, the, the Fed has really backstopped a low cost of capital for our economy for a while now. It's been it seems like it's been yeah. a while. That that's code for super low interest rates, right? Yeah. They have used everything from quantitative easing, which is the actual purchasing of bonds, in some cases the purchasing of stocks or exchange traded funds even to bolster the market to to keep the demand for US treasuries very, very high. When the demand is high, the price of the treasury stays high, which means the yield stays low. I know that seems weird to people, but there's a there's an opposite relationship between yield and price for treasuries for for fixed income instruments in general, right? And and it's because yeah. you're making a loan, right? If you want the loan to pay a lot, right? Like if we fixed all the stuff, right? So hey, I have a thousand dollars that I give you, and it's paying ten percent. That's a hundred bucks, right? That it's going to pay in interest yep. for for one year, every year for thirty years, okay? If the new treasury is coming out at five hundred dollars, pay a hundred bucks, right? Then you're not willing to pay me a thousand bucks to buy the old one from me, because you could buy a new one for five hundred bucks, lower price, with the same yield. Then what's going to happen to the one that I already own? For me to unload it to somebody else, to sell it to somebody else, I got to drop the price. Mm -hmm. So I drop the price so that my equivalent yield is attractive compared to what's now being offered by the market. Right, the new five hundred dollar cheaper version still paying a hundred, so it went from ten percent return to twenty percent. Well, that cuts my investment pretty much in half. Now there are other things at play here. We're not going to go into them today. It's you know has to do with how soon until the bond matures and everything else. There's a whole pricing methodology to it. Just know that there's an inverse relationship between the price of the bond and the yield. So price goes up, yield goes down. How do you make something more expensive? 
you get into a bidding war. Right? If you want your house to be more expensive, you get lots of people to want to buy it. They get in a bidding war. Yep. So that's what the Treasury, uh, that's essentially what the Federal Reserve has done is, well, let's create a bidding war for Treasuries by buying billions. Right? And so, that just can't keep going on. And that's forever. Quanti- well, it's not that it can't. I mean, I suppose they could keep doing it recklessly. Right. Some argue they already are. <laughs> but the issue is if they stop, it then changes what? the supply and demand dynamic of the market. Mm-hmm. And if there's less demand and the same supply, the price can begin to drop. Okay, right. If the price drops, interest rates go higher on a relative basis. So if interest rates go higher and you go to the bank to take a loan out, it costs you more, which means it's more expensive to borrow. Now, everybody that's going out and buying houses with super cheap mortgages, if the mortgages were twice as expensive, you could buy less house. Yes. Right? Because you'd have a higher payment to service the same amount of debt. So it affects, the. it's called the cost of capital. And I'm watching as the Federal Reserve's narrative is changing. Okay. Right? What have you seen recently with the Federal Reserve that well, that's catching your eye? The phrase transitory. Ooh. Yeah. So it's in reference to inflation. Right. The Federal Reserve has sort of said, we believe that inflation is transitory. Now, the Fed has its hands tied a little bit. Right. And it's they've been tied by Washington, D.C. a little bit, too. Okay. And also this is all right, here comes controversial statement of the day. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. The CDC. Stay with me here. We're following. It connects. Right. And it's not a conspiracy either. It all connects without it being a conspiracy. So the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. It, it, they need to have target unemployment at 5% or lower, and they want target inflation rate of 2%. Okay. okay. And so that dual mandate is tricky because you're trying to keep both in balance. COVID throws unemployment way out of whack. Okay. Right? So they're just trying to keep the other one yeah. at bay. So COVID throws everything way out of whack. Congress steps in and says, we will do emergency unemployment. And we will increase the unemployment benefit for everybody that got laid off because of COVID. And so we're going to pay people while they're not working. Okay. Now, that throws off the Fed because now they've got a new wrinkle to work with, right? Well, hey, we have the D.C., Washington is essentially paying people that aren't working. How do we get them back into the workforce later? That's a challenge, right? Because we've, we've all heard the story about, well, businesses are hiring and wages are going mm-hmm. up. That's a form of inflation, right? Wage inflation. Okay. Is this where your six percent or uh, September sixth is? That's a big deal. Yeah, right? September sixth. Um, yeah, that <laughs> came up in our. Are you going to sell me out about that? Uh, I, I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it came up in our investment committee this morning. Is my concern is that if we see an extension right. of unemployment benefits beyond September sixth, I view that as a bearish signal for the market. That's my opinion, not investment advice. Mm-hmm. I think it's a bearish signal because well, that draw, this correlates to what you're talking about. It does. Yeah. So the, this is now. Let me tie in the CDC so you don't think I'm crazy. The CDC issued an extension of the eviction moratorium, which further skews the supply and demand curve for housing, right? And further hampers landlords. The small landlord is getting sort of burned at the stake right now when they can't collect rents but yeah. still have payments on their properties. So 
there are some really unnatural things going on in the marketplace. Why do we care about evictions and real estate so much? Because it's the majority of the collateral in the banking system. Yeah. Okay. So if you have the majority of the collateral in the banking system and it's a cost of capital event, right? Remember, right. it's the Fed setting the cost of capital. They are tied together. So that's my concern is that if we either get an extension of unemployment benefits again or we get some kind of a continued extension the of the eviction rules or the, the, la the no eviction rules, those are unnatural interventions in the marketplace. Yeah. And it really has the Fed behind the eight ball because we do see inflation, right? Gas is clearly more expensive. Commodity prices routinely fluctuate, so I don't want to use the price of lumber as it, but the price of housing has clearly gone up dramatically. And if you've been to the grocery store, it's really hard to suggest anywhere that we haven't seen the prices of goods and services in the grocery store go up. They have, because supply is down. Have a lot of people been defaulting on their mortgages because of the... I haven't heard about mortgage defaults per se, but... Um, it would seem like kind of the natural next well, step if, if this is extended. And, and, and to, to some extent, like mortgages, there was some mortgage forgiveness if you qualified. And at one point, they just sort of tacked it on, right? By not paying, what they did was they just pushed it later. So, mm -hmm. okay, I have a 27-year mortgage. I go a year without paying. I still have 27 years when I'm done. But all the interest I should have been so paying kind of gets tacked on the So we're just piling that interest on the back end. Yes. Okay. Uh, and at least that's my understanding. I mean, that would make sense. Otherwise, if they didn't do that, everyone would... that is renting right. out their properties is going to be defaulting without those rent payments. Right. Yeah. And so in all of the composite of this picture... We're just pushing our problems further and further well, back. Yeah, kicking the can down the road. Right? Yeah. And so we kick How the can, can we down kick the road that can? financially. And here's the, here's the big elephant in the room, right? Something akin to... It's either 20 or 25%. Don't fact check me, but somewhere in there, it's a ridiculous number... 20 to 25% of all U.S. dollars in existence in the system have been created in the last 12 months. Are you serious? Yeah. Certainly in That's the last alarming. two years, right? I mean, it's it's been a crazy amount of money that we have created through quantitative, well, not just quantitative easing, but through like the PPP programs. All of these emergency print, packages print, print. were conjuring it. I don't even call it printing anymore. It's conjuring of money. Right. Right. And so that goes somewhere in the system. Right now, the supply chains due to COVID have been interrupted. So you actually have a reduction in supply and an increase in capital. So do you feel like the inflation numbers aren't truly accurate then to where we're at at this moment in time? Well, Are this they is lagging? where the language is coming in that needs to be scrutinized. When somebody says, like the Federal Reserve says to me, we think inflation's transitory. What they're saying is, well, we think that it's inflationary now, but we don't think it'll stick around. Okay. And here's the bottom line. I disagree. Now, you're yeah. going to say, like, wait a second. You think you're smarter than all these people in the government? Like, or maybe you're just a little bit more clear and factual. No, what factual. I think is the, it's a committee making a decision, and they have more than just economics They've got an agenda behind with, it. Yeah. Right? There, there's, there's the political elements that play, too. And so, yeah, I think they are, their hands are tied how do we get unemployment up? Well, we can't start raising interest rates now, and we still have people that are getting uh, that aren't in the workforce, and we got supply chains all goofy, and now we have still more issues with COVID. Blah 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 blah. Inflation, right? I think it's real. Oh yeah. 
So that's the concern. Now, does it mean the markets are going to crash? We'll talk about it after our last obscene profit break, because that's the part I think you may be surprised by. But uh, yeah, we got to take this last break. So stick around. We'll be back right after this. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Alright, gang, welcome back to the home stretch of the True Wealth Show. Don't forget podcast at littlejohnfs.com under the educate tab. And Matt, is the market gonna crash? I don't think it's gonna crash. I think it could sidestep a little yeah. bit. And the answer, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, but I don't I don't know that the crash may look like what people think it'll look like, right? Yeah. This is the acknowledgement. Dear listeners and regulators, this is me making a scientific wild estimate guess right <laughs> swag uh we are just gonna say well you know what does it mean and um i think a lot of people are hung up on the covid stuff right now and afghanistan but you had some insight onto that do you want to go down that rabbit hole or do you want to sidestep that too so i mean i like your opinion on it <laughs> I'll keep it really fast for our listeners. Okay. I, I believe that Afghanistan is truly tragic on a humanitarian level. I don't think the market's looking at it as a significant financial impact. Yep. And so I don't want to burden the show or any of our listeners with trying to unpack that. Uh, parts are complicated and then parts of it are just ridiculously simple, right? Like I just don't get behind the death of women and children for politics. Period. So that's yeah. pretty easy for me. I really don't get behind the death of people most of the time for that, unless those people only want to win by killing other people, at which point I go, we're going to have trouble talking. Yeah. So I don't have a lot of tolerance for intolerance in, in that respect. Mm -hmm. uh, but the rest of it, that seems very simple. So not a, not a need to unpack that much for, for this show's purpose. Now, the, the other question um, about COVID, I think, is more that we're just in it right now and it's mm -hmm. really ugly right now and i think most of us are getting to a point where for a while maybe there was a certain amount of uh, civil disobedience because you know we're often the minority vote in roseburg compared to portland and so there's a little bit of hey you know i'm, I'm kind of anti-government around here and so we, we kind of have that you know tough attitude about stuff and we and because we were really aggressive with protocols it didn't just burn us at the stake yeah early but it's here right yeah. and so i mean i know people that are really struggling and i've, I've never been a covid denier uh you know there's a whole complexity to it but the larger point is in regards to the market i think the yeah. rest of the world like the rest of the country isn't experiencing it the way we are experiencing it right here so our local biases that we tend to project that everything is this bad and it's not this bad everywhere. It's there's spots, it, yeah. but we're pretty bad right now and it's tough. And for those that are struggling and directly affected by it, you know, genuinely thoughts and prayers are with you. So I don't want to trivialize that nor do I want to politicize it. That is what it is. But, but looking I, at the market. But at the market and the way things are working, I think we're getting to the 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 other side of this thing because I think a lot of people, uh, I, I don't think the models haven't gotten it very right lately. 
right? So, so that's my issue. Here's my bigger issue, right? Okay. I don't know that a market crash looks like a market crash the way we traditionally think of it. Like, oh, the stock market just fell by 25% or something right. like that. Uh, we start locking stuff down unexpectedly. That can happen, right? That, that really could. Mm-hmm. We don't do that, though, and we kind of press on with what we're seeing now. My larger concern is inflation could really take off. And we could see real loss of purchasing power. Stock market kind of stays flat, but everything else around us gets more expensive. And you've effectively just lost your purchasing power, right? You're not keeping up with inflation. So you are experiencing a loss, but you don't see it in the form of a, a big market correction. That that could happen. Essentially, it's everything inflating, but the market not inflating as fast as everything else. Right. But it's no a more- phantom crash, right? Yeah. So I think we really could see that because markets kind of love irony. And, uh, you know, I, I think the joke that at any given time, the markets will do whatever they can to prove the most number of people wrong at once. <laughs> so everybody's kind of saying, oh, it's got to crash, right? You know, No, it doesn't. But we could look back in two years and say, oh, I see what happened there. Yeah. Right. You know, everything doubled in price. Gas is now four bucks a gallon and milk is five bucks a gallon. And my investment portfolio is the same as it was two years ago. Oh, that that's real, right? That could really yeah. happen. So that's the part that I keep an eye on is what if a crash doesn't look like a crash? You know, we keep thinking, well, what if all of my stocks fall? What if they don't, right? What if they just don't go up? So yeah. so what's our solve? What do you mean what's our solve? <laughs> yeah. What do you do as investors, right? What does everybody need to, to do? And the answer is, Seek qualified advice. Uh, if we are truly going through an inflationary environment, you want to own assets that will inflate. And that's uh, really simple. Own assets, not liabilities. Okay. Turns out that's pretty good advice all the time. Assets yeah. tend to go up in value. Liabilities do not. So load up the balance sheet the right way. Make good decisions. And the number one rule in finance, spend less than you make. I like that. Right? Pretty easy there. Spend less than you make and you can go for but as you can tell, that is the music, so we are out of time. Uh, if you would like to uh, take a look at your investment options or are looking for advice or help, feel free to give us a call. Matt, have you memorized the number? No. Uh-oh, well, 541-375-0898. So we're out of time for now, but thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this has been David Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN.